welcome to ABA Unfiltered. I'm your host, Tim Crilly. Today, we are joined by two of my uh, work BCBA cousins. Uh, they are um, joining us from the Cedar Group today, uh, Nathan Albright and Mandy Ralston. Sometimes goes by Amanda. I forgot to ask pregame what she prefers, but I'm going with Mandy because if I try to do Amanda, it'll never work. So today we're, we're here to talk about um, outcomes. And when I threw out the idea of this, this topic, the, the working title of the, sh the podcast was going to be Outcomes from Outcomes. And maybe that'll get changed in the, the, the postgame process. But it's a topic that is uh, a, a giant puzzle. It's something that we've been talking about as an industry for a very long time. And it's not really anything that I've been able to put my finger on. Uh, I've had a chance to, to listen to these two folks talk about it at a recent conference we had um, with a bunch of us internally and some external folks, and they have a lot of great ideas about it. So I'm really excited to hear their their thoughts on outcomes and what we as an industry can be doing to really move that, that conversation forward. So before we jump in, I'd like uh, to take a moment for you guys to introduce yourself. So Mandy, I've known you the longest. Why don't you, you kick it off? Tell us a little bit about who you are, um, how you got here, and what your role at the uh, Cedar Group is. Hey, thanks, Tim. Um, I'm Mandy Ralston. I have been um, board certified in one version or another since or, excuse me, uh, since 2001. So I was originally a BCABA uh, and then uh, upped my my game to a BCBA <clears throat> later on in my career. So I'm a recovering entrepreneur. Uh, I was one of the acquisitions from Blue Sprig in 2019. Um, was really really happy to find my family in that organization and then was later given the opportunity to move to the Cedar Group, which is uh, the sort of technological arm of, of applied behavior analysis and, and the family of, of uh, the different providers uh, through Bruce Frigg and some of the other acquisitions that we've had. So uh, my current title is Director of Clinical Intelligence, uh, which sounds way cooler than it actually is. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, we are a small but mighty team of four right now over at the Cedar Group and uh, have really hit the ground running with big ideas and big hopes to make big impact in the industry and, and really elevate the outcomes uh, for the industry of ABA. Okay, we'll get there. Hold on. Okay. We're, we're going to get to that. Uh, Nathan, a little bit about you, buddy, because you I, I, I just met recently, so this will be new information to me as well. Yeah, I, I'm Nathan Albright. Um, I have not been practicing as a BCBA nearly as long as Mandy. I'm about eight years in myself. Um, so my my background kind of stemmed from education. So I was in the field of education and special education prior to you know finding this world of ABA, and really took it to um, you know looking for opportunities where. ABA wasn't used in a conventional sense. So my, my first position wasn't in a clinic setting or working with individuals with autism. I was on a crisis management team for the Department of Human Services in Illinois. So it was um, everything under the umbrella of developmental disabilities and really got my feet wet to just where, you know, where opportunities are going to be, but also all these different perspectives where we don't necessarily get to see on a day-to-day -day basis. And you know, going from there to doing some regional work, I've had kind of my hand in regional operations and behavior management, organizational behavior management for about six states worth of centers now. 
And that got me into meeting Dr. Cameron, which then got me into understanding what the Cedar Group is all about. And, you know, a little while back, I got a friendly call from Dr. Cameron and I wasn't too far behind Mandy in joining the uh, the Small But Mighty Cedar Group team. Uh, that's that's great, you know, and I, I think, you know, Michael Cameron uh, was a guest in, in season one and, you know, he has he has quite an influence over uh, a large group of, of folks. And it, it's great to see a lot of us being able to come together. So, you know, I joke that you guys are my, my work cousins. Uh, can you give just a little tiny little piece of uh, really what the, the overall uh, impact that the Cedar Group has within the Blue Sprig family, as well as how it is separate at the same time and, and what it's doing you know, sort of as an outside influencer as well, uh, before we really jump into it. Mandy, you want to start or do you want me to go? Go ahead. I'll let you try it out. All right. I'll take a stab at this. Yeah. Um, so Mandy had referenced the Cedar Group being kind of like the technological arm of all of these acquisitions. And it, it's not center-based. It's not home-based. We don't work directly with um, families or clients Um we kind of look to find systems and technological support to make, you know, those circumstances um, more available to families or um, working with clinicians, making sure that the right decisions are being made at the right time. Um, you know, our field is relatively new, but the amount of BCBAs in the last several years has just skyrocketed. And I might butcher the percentage on here, but within the last couple of years, about 50% of everybody that is BCPA certified is still within their first two-year certification cycle. So, you know, coming out of school, obviously, what I knew then versus what I know now is, is vastly different. You know, so considering how quickly things are growing, you know, we really want to make sure, you know, in conjunction with the size of Blue Sprig and FAC and a lot of organizations out there, we want to make sure that the clinical decisions that we're making for some of these kids and these families early on are good decisions and that have evidence-based backing behind them. You know, and if Cedar Group can find a way to kind of bridge that gap with some of the technology that we have, um, you know, that's the goal that we have is to make sure that we're putting families, clients, clinicians in positions to succeed and feel supported when they're making tough calls. Okay. So, Mandy, you know, th that means basically a lot of different organizations might benefit from the tools. Can you maybe just describe that a little bit and then we can, we can move on. Yeah. Uh, I think total uh, board certified behavior analysts worldwide right now is probably in the neighborhood of 36,000 individuals. So if 50% of those individuals are less than two years old professionally, um, we don't have enough people with experience that have the ability to mentor that volume of individuals that are entering the, the, the field. And so what we're trying to do, what we're able to do at the Cedar Group is to design clinical decision models that will bring the resources, the literature, the best data that we have available about how to make clinical decisions and, uh, you know, basically provide bumper rails for these kinds of decisions uh, for, for young clinicians that may not have gotten the actual real world experience and can't take up, you know, 
hours upon hours of their supervisor's times to pick their brain about how's the best way to deal with this particular clinical issue. Um, so we're really able to draw on the literature that's available, look at the ethical uh, considerations involved, and bring all of that data to the central question and help people make decisions that are really evidence-based. That's fantastic. And, you know, I think we, we talked about it a little bit in a, in a conversation we had last season around the whole concept of an internship model and how we really lack that in our, in our industry as a whole at the moment. And people are getting hired left and right as soon as they pass the test and are just pushed out into the into the real world without, you know, and I think it's a perfect way to describe it, without those guardrails to not to really not have the, the, uh, the mechanism in place to, to know if what they're deciding to implement is the thing they should be implementing. And by the time you figure out, wow, that wasn't the right way to go, how much time is lost or how much damage could have been, you know, trying to, you know, put upon that that family or that individual in, in the meanwhile. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the industry's got an issue with getting all these young professionals coming out of the gate. You know, they've demonstrated the minimum level of competence in order to become certified. They pass the test, right? Um, and that goes for most medical fields. Exactly. That goes for most medical fields, right? It's a C equals MD, right? Even if you got a C in your class, you still could be a medical professional. Well, the guy that graduates medicine. last still practices graduates. medicine. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, you've got young professionals coming into the field and these are high stakes issues. I mean, these are children uh, and families that have significant problem behavior. You're, you're capturing a window of time potentially with early intervention that you have only so much um, room to really make an impact before that person gets into a school age situation, so on and so forth. So it, it's really high stakes uh, play that we're working with here. And from the from the young professional side too, it's like, well, my supervisor has thrust me into these things, and I I need to basically acquiesce to the idea that I know what I'm doing, and so I may not want to ask certain questions. And if I'm given these types of tools that are uh, digital and I can use on my computer, I I don't really have to worry about feeling embarrassed that I'm asking a question that somebody has purported that I should already know the answer to. And that's just not realistic for all the information that's out there right now. Yeah. Nathan, any uh, follow up on that? I, I wouldn't disagree. I mean, Mandy mentioned early intervention as that window of opportunity. Um, you know, what I, what I appreciate about, you know, the field of ABA is our opportunity to support in a, in a way that, you know, there are right now no other, other fields that are supporting the way that we can and we do, um, especially with the science behind what we have over the course of, you know, Skinner to now, I don't want to take that for granted. And I don't want, you know, new clinicians coming into the field to forget how impactful that time can potentially be. So I, I want us to be in a position where we can set a high bar that does at, you know, at face value feel and look scary. Um, but in saying, you're going to make it, you're going to do the right thing. You're going to make the right decisions because you've got these things now available to you. You're like when we were coming out of school, I didn't have a system. I had a, I had a white book that I lived by religiously to learn, you know, my fundamental values. I had an ethics book. And then I had this kid that had several diagnoses with medical comorbidities and medications that I didn't know half-lives or dosages for and a neurologist that they see twice a year and now this white book means something, but I don't know how it fits into everything that I'm going to be doing and programming for on a regular basis. So to compartmentalize what I know 
and to address that alongside all of the other life issues and barriers that these families are going through on a regular basis is tough for anybody, no matter how long you've been in the field for. Well, and we, we, we need all these young professionals. There's a reason that this this field is growing exponentially, and it's because of the, the rate of autism, right? The, the families, the individuals with autism, they need our services, and we need more help. Um, but it's incumbent upon those of us that have been in the field for a while to design, uh, you know, be the architects of certain systems. It's going to help support these individuals to be as ex- successful as they possibly can be. Absolutely. You know, uh, when I first started thinking about this topic, I really, I, I, you know, you think about all the, the shareholders we have in, in this. You have obviously the, the actual client themselves. You have the family unit. You have the, the, the payers. You also have the clinicians. And I, I, I kind of, you know, they're often the forgotten element when we, when we think about these things. And you guys just brought up a lot of great points about how their inability to be 100% or even 80% sure of what they're doing is the right thing to be doing, how that impacts everybody else on that list. So uh, it's it's really something that if those guardrails and those practices and those, those procedures can be outlined and can be totally data-driven, what an impact that has on that clinician's ability to then impact those other groups of, of stakeholders in this, in this process. So, yeah. And it's, it's, it's not, it's got multiple layers and it actually, we're talking about the field of applied behavior analysis, you know, to, to Nathan's point, it's like, there's a lot of people who've done a lot of work before us to allow us to be in a position to have this as a pr- profession in the first place. Um, and so we have a duty to uh, those that came before us to, to really have the data that shows that we're being effective. Sure. And- now we have technology and, and all these things and other other healthcare you know uh, sectors are embracing those sorts of things. So you know why shouldn't we be involved in that? Okay, so obviously it's all solved. You guys are set, ready to go. So I really thank you for for joining us. And that was a little bit shorter than I had planned. Now, so why is this so hard? Why is the concept? of outcomes. It's almost like a, a secret word. You have to whisper it like a speakeasy or like the, you know, the, the door slides open with a little people. We've been at this a while. I've been hearing about it since basically the, the day I, I stepped foot in the industry. What, why is the concept of having concrete outcomes a such a challenge? And what are you guys thinking about and how are you thinking about it and where do we take it to to make it less of a challenge and, and really be able to put concrete definitions around it? Um, there, there's two big variables that come to mind right away for me. It's, you know, the the concept of ABA as a science, right, as as single case design, right, um, in conjunction with the diagnosis of autism and some of the unknowns with that. But you know, there's that, what's that famous saying? If you've, you've met an individual with autism, you've met one individual with autism. So the individualization of the diagnosis itself coupled with single case design science behind ABA makes for a very unique situation, right? I know. So I, you know, I've got a lot of family that's in, you know, the medical field. It's very different there in comparison to this look at every situation as an individual way. So when we're talking about outcomes and we're talking about every case that I have as a clinician being different from each other, those don't really go well together, you know, water and oil type of conversation there. So trying to find a way 
to allow my clinicians the creativity to find some some avenues for success for each individual client while building and collecting data in an accurate and reliable way to make sure that we can use that at a higher level to make macro level changes. Um, you know, trying to do both of those things with the same types of data make for a really difficult conversation and a solution. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we've talked um, a lot about the notion that I think uh, the heterogeneous um, nature of autism itself, uh, the concept of neurodiversity, um, the, the concept that there is no such thing as normal, there is only common and rare, right? Um, really, being able to talk about outcomes is, is being able to talk about the best possible outcome within that individual, and that is very nuanced. Um, and that's not just at an individual level, that's also at a family level, right? Uh, culturally, what do people value about their lives and how they want to interact with individuals and what level of independence and what is actually happiness? Those are outcomes, right? But how to quantify those has been sort of the existential crisis that ABA has been in, right? So we've got lots of different tools. Obviously, we're, we're completely buried in data, but the data isn't telling the story that we needed to tell. Like we, we've got this, uh, you know, oral history of look what ABA has done to my, done for my child or my family, but we don't necessarily have data that is walking along that same path. And so we've got to really look at how do we get from that, that macro level, what is the impact of all the intervention that we're doing to change the core diagnostic properties of an autism diagnosis down to how does that relate to the programs that we've been working on for this past week where it might be something as simple as can you sit in a chair for two minutes uh, and, and attend to somebody that's giving an instruction, right? Um, so, you know, a lot of the conversation that we're having in the CEDAR group revolves around quality of life um, and just trying to determine, is there a way to start this process of treatment by really talking to the caregivers and the client when possible and ask them, how do these areas affect your quality of life? And knowing that we can pick out the things that are actually going to impact the family and the client the most to bring down their stress levels, to increase independence and to be happier. That's that's the really the hard part. It, it's easy to say like, oh, you know, look at all these things reduced or these things increased. Uh, but that doesn't always tell the story. So from a from a parent standpoint, uh, what do you guys see as as their role in this process and, and what can they be doing to um, help? maybe sort of set the standard of, of, of what it should be. And, and does that mean it's this is what I need in my life or should I expect something more uh, than, than, is, than is possible? Like where do we where do we start that conversation and how does it work with the family unit? It, it depends, probably. Um, you know, I've met a lot of families at intake when we've done initial assessments that you know, and you ask them about their experience or history with ABA in general, a lot of them are there because, you know, their referring physician recommended that this was a treatment that they would, you know, find beneficial. And this is the first time that they're learning about something. So a lot of times where we're at as clinicians is not the same starting point as families whatsoever. And I think that's why, 
you know, at the Cedar Group, when we're talking about these macro changes and what outcomes really should look like, it is very family focused. And that's why quality of life is a vernacular that we use probably on a daily basis in terms of how are we going to be measuring these things, right? It's not the number of mans or requests a client does per day. It's not what their scores look like on a skills assessment. You know, those are great, but you know, at some point I'm never going to see you again, right? Our time at clinical therapy is over. And my job is to make sure that when that time comes, you're on the right track for habituation and autonomy and family success and happiness and your stress index levels are down. All of those type of quality of life pieces that a clinician, we don't necessarily address on a regular basis because, you know, traditionally a BCBA is building their program off of skills assessments that we're more familiar with. We really want to shift that focus to say, if is what I'm doing inside my center or at my home therapy, is this valuable to the client? And then is it valuable to the caregivers? Is it valuable to their home environment or community living arrangements? Those are important pieces that I feel like, you know, as a clinician, I should be trying to remember on a day-to-day basis when I'm making my clinically-based decisions. Yeah, we talked during the summit about the, the the notion of a life cycle of a goal or the, the pathway of a goal, you know, and understanding how being able to sit quietly for 30 seconds might relate to something like being independent in toilet t- training, right? Um, that on its own, sit still for 30 seconds doesn't look like a particularly useful skill, but when you understand that that's a prerequisite to all the other different types of components related to being able to go into a public restroom and sit still on the toilet by yourself, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. So to your question about, you know, families involvement, it's, it's these, these micro level goals, excuse me, these micro level goals and these macro level quality of life, um, outcomes have a cascading and a foundational relationship, right? The, the macro flows down all the way down to the micro level uh, goal that we're working on. Likewise, the relationship between families and clinic, clinicians and what we're doing in treatment for a client that also affects the family, that's a very synergistic and symbiotic relationship. If the, the more we have involvement with the family and we can align ourselves, align ourselves with their values and understand what's going to be important to them as an outcome, the more they're going to have buy-in, they're going to want to actually participate in what we're doing and and follow through. So I I love that. You know, you talk about micro success. So the the toileting, the independence, all those things, those mean the world to a family. So all those little micro things that improve that overall quality of life. How do you take those micro successes and make them the macro expectation when you're trying to, convince health plans or sort of funding sources you guys might not have the answer to this because it's a tough one but how do you take how do you take the micro success and turn it into the macro expectation to then ensure that these services remain available part two and when you don't have necessarily great alignment as an industry amongst the the clinical world as it relates to these sort of things, does that add an an extra obstacle to the the challenge of of communicating with a health plan to say, no, you got to give it this amount of time. You have to do these things because you're going to see the success when other people are maybe telling a, a, a different 
narrative. Have you guys kind of kind of started to peek into that yet, or is that down the road a little bit? And if it is, great. You know, we can talk about it in 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 a, in a later episode. Well, I mean, I think we're, we're working on building the technology to give us a the real-time feedback on how our programs are going in the field um, and giving clinicians dashboards to look at and where they instantly understand the trend of their data, um, again, on that micro level. But what we should then be able to do with that instant information uh, is look at, you know, longer-term uh, assessments, skill assessments, um, the standardized uh, assessments, such as the ADOS or the ADAI. ADIR um, and be able to say, I can now predict that if somebody's rate of learning is this or their uh, percentage of non-overlapping data points is this, that it then will impact um, uh, th this particular type of individual in this way. And I expect to see their skill assessment change to this degree in six months, 12 months, two years, so on and so forth. So I think we're starting to peel back the layers to understand how we're going to be able to use our day-to-day -day data to better predict what types of trajectory we're going to have with the individuals in treatment. Wow. Okay. That actually makes a lot of that. sense, even though uh, it sounds really hard. <laughs> you know, it's, it's an interesting position to be in, especially uh, at the Cedar Group, because we're kind of at a unique place where we you know, we can see a little bit behind the scenes with the providers that are supported um, that have been using these models for two plus years um, in some instances. And now being able to kind of review and from our unique perspectives of having that clinical background to say, you know, where, you know, where's the gap? Where's the bridge, the gap? And I think Cedar Group can do a, a couple of things with with our position. I think one of those things is perspective perspective. Um, you know, when, when I'm a clinician, I'm not writing this goal just to write the next goal. Right. And we want to make sure that our clinicians are making good clinically based decisions with outcomes in mind at the start and not at the end when they're reviewing things. So purpose to perspective, I think is really important. And, you know, if I'm writing my treatment plan, I do have to remember that I need to be making clinical decisions that not only have an outcome that's valuable for the client, um, that I need to be thinking of that outcome even before I'm creating the goal in the first place, right? I should be able to be asked, what does this goal ultimately mean for the person that you're supporting? If I'm writing a goal and I don't have that answer, it's not a good goal. And I should be able to put that into a treatment plan and be able to explain that to a provider. And I think that's what providers are looking for is a little consistency from the field to say, what does all this actually mean in terms of clinical support and success for the future of this family? Um, and I think if you can do that, there's a bridge the gap moment there that I think the technology that we are building is going to assist in doing. Um, I, I really do feel confident in that. Yeah, what's uh, what's uh, our colleague's great quote, Nathan? Dr. Kristen Byra says that uh, the road to hell is paved with data that you never look at. <laughs> That's the nerdiest thing I've ever heard, but okay. <laughs> and I would say that to her face, so don't worry. Good, good. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I really appreciate you guys taking a couple minutes out of your day to, to chat about this. This is this is something that I, you know, we talked about at the beginning, it's, it's been out there. It's just been floating around and it's, you know, the, the great unknown. So I have such confidence in your guys' ability after sitting through that three day, um, 
summit and maybe understanding about 12% of what was being said in the room. It's just some really heavy thinking, a lot of heavy lifting, uh, but a lot of talented people working on, on this project. So I can't wait to, to see where it goes and, and the impact that it has uh, on the industry. And, and when you guys start making the rounds and, and presenting on certain things, it's going to be fascinating to sit in the back and, and, you know, hoot and holler for you. So I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, before we go, I do have one question uh, that we ask all our guests, um, and I want you to hear it for the first time individually. So, Mandy, since you're wearing a visible uh, headset, I'd like you to take it off. I'll give you a thumbs up when we're ready because I don't trust Nathan to, to, not, to not cheat, so I'm going to have him go first. Okay, thanks. Okay, so, Nathan, this is... Um, it's a, it's a yes or no question, and then I need an operational definition to support your answer. Yeah. Okay. Is cereal soup? He has a pained look on his face at the moment for those of you at home. Gosh, I, uh, I, I need to give a little bit of a backstory before I answer this. Fine. I love it. Last week, I, I just had these same, I just had these same questions. Not this one. This has never been posed to me. I asked my wife if a hot dog is a taco. Okay. <laughs> I've heard that one. Yeah. And we, we got into that. Um, and I never got these, the cereal, the soup. You know, I can certainly see the yes side of things because, you know, you've got that broth, milk, right? Yeah. With, you know, components and ingredients inside sure. of it. You know, I, I don't know if I would write a definition for vegetable soup any different than I would for cereal. Gosh, you know, just because I felt so strongly about the taco hot dog thing, yeah. I'm going to say, I'm going to say yes, because okay. if I'm going to write a definition for what soup is, and for what cereal is, they're probably not that far off. Okay. Um, so I'm going to say reluctantly, yes. Okay, fair um, enough. But if you give me some time to learn a little bit more about it, I'm probably <laughs> going to be a huge advocate for the yes answer. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, by the end of season two, we'll have it completely, completely uh, answered. So you'll be you'll be either in the winning column or the, the losing column. Like you okay. can even go into like, is, is steak a salad, right? You like all of those types sure. of things. You bring me back on for a whole podcast of that. Okay, fine. We'll have you on every season. About... Okay. All right. We'll have you every season. Okay. Mandy looks bored. Okay. She's coming back. And this is fascinating for the listeners at home. All right. I'm worried. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's a yes or no question. And I need an operational definition to support your answer. Okay. Is cereal soup? Here's an answer from Ultimate Guitar. <laughs> what was that? Uh, Suri tried to answer the question for us on my phone. <laughs> Hilarious. Okay. Is, is cereal soup? No. Um, do you want an operational definition yes. of soup? Why? And, no, just why oh, it's not soup. Why is it not? What is my argument to why it's not soup? Okay. Yes, basically. Um, well, milk is a single ingredient of its own. Uh, that, that's one supposition, right? Uh, and so it's not a broth. A broth would typically be multiple liquid elements that are 
put together as a base. Um, and so you're adding something crunchy to a single food, milk. Um, so that would disqualify it from soup, uh, you know, obviously vichyssoise or um, what's the other chilled soup, gazpacho. Those are cold and yet they're still soups. Uh, they're multiple ingredients. But again, I think uh, the, the base for each of them is, is multiple. And then, of course, you can also add oyster crackers and whatnot, a, a crunchy substance to a soup such as a chowder. Uh, but again, those are those are multiple uh, ingredient base items underneath. Okay. So that, that's what I want. So it's a, it's a broth milk situation. It's a broth milk situation. You're making me change my answer. No, there's no one. You're not allowed. You're not allowed. You're going to so, off, you're gonna have to talk offline about it. Okay. All right. You're, make, you're, you're making me rethink my answer now. Okay. Yeah, because it's, it's like if I add celery to a base of ketchup, is that soup? Right. So if, if it's, a, it's just not, a single, it's not a good soup, but maybe it's, it's soup. Not a good soup. Yeah. But yeah, it's just a single ingredient as a base that then gets something else added to okay. it. Fair that's enough. Not soup. It's, it's like adding crackers to water or adding crackers to orange juice. That's not okay. soup. Okay. Probably, Nathan, your answer was great. How you, <laughs> probably depends on how you define cereal, right? If you're, if you're identifying cereal as, you know, the box of stuff in it. Or cereal as the meal cereal. That's right? a combination of things. Okay. So if if in your in that definition, if a box of cereal came with milk already in it and you poured it into a bowl, that's more likely to be a soup, like getting a can of soup out of the uh, out of the pantry. You know, we make we make these decision models and coding and having all of these outcome conversations. And honestly, this might be the hardest question that I've been asked <laughs> in the last year. Okay, and, great. I, and I think we're definitely going to make this decision model. OK, so I broke the secret. I think so. Perfect. <laughs> OK, well, hey, guys, I really appreciate you coming on and I, I really hope to have you guys back. It was a lot of fun chatting uh, my brain hurts a little bit and that's always that's always a good sign that we talked about some good stuff so uh, i'd like to thank everybody for taking a couple minutes out of their day to join us on aba filtered please join us again in the future and have uh, a great day it's been a great pleasure tim thank you so thanks, much okay. thanks guys